2: Welcome to Real Jam Radio. I am Danny Lurie, your host, and so happy to be with you for this episode. I wanted to do something on the timing was about right because we're getting into the All Star break, on the NBA draft, taking stock of where we are with everything else, and the great person to talk to with that is Sam Vecini, senior writer at the Athletics College Basketball site. Does great work in terms of college basketball, but also in terms of the draft, which is usually what he and I talk about, and. For this episode, we also went a little bit into the NBA, and some some on the deadline, he, he wanted to talk about Jordan Clarkson, so we talked a little bit about Jordan Clarkson. So, a lot of different directions, a little bit at the top, a little bit in the middle, a little bit towards the bottom of the first round, and conversation runs i think it's about an hour 15 and is brought to you by true car you can check out true car for both your new and used car buying needs and desires whatever you want and again conversation about an hour 15 a lot of different directions i hope you really enjoy it thanks so much for coming on
0: danny of course i'm always happy to come on we're in this like little dead spot of curling right now where the Mixed Doubles Championship just happened uh, late last night, Pacific time, and the men's and women's competitions don't start until, I want to say, like 4 o'clock today in the afternoon. So you were recording it Tuesday at like 1 o'clock. I've got three hours, so we can go super long. It's just that if we go to 4, I'm going to have to cut it off because of curling.
2: That is one of the sports I've never gotten into. There there may be a time for it, but it hasn't been yet. And I, I appreciate it for the difficulty that it presents, but I, I just haven't gotten into it yet. Instead, we'll do another kind of pinpoint accuracy. We'll try to get into the draft guys for this year. And I don't want to spend as much time at the top of the draft as we have before, partially because sure. my instinct is that it hasn't really changed that much. Is that understanding correct?
0: I mean... Not a crazy amount. No, like, we've certainly made more substantive decisions, maybe, on who we like and, you know, like marginally less than other players. Uh, like, I had DeAndre Ayton at number three coming into the year. He's now number one on my board. Like, he, it's not like he's gone from number one to number 10. You know what I mean? Like, any, anyone who I had in the top 10 coming into the year, uh, is no lower than 12 uh anyone that i had uh, the only real riser that I had lower coming into the year is Mikael Bridges, who I have at number nine. Well, and you, and uh, Trey but, Young, right? And Trey Young, I'm sorry. That's right. Yeah, Trey Young, of course. But is that rise happened a
2: while ago, so it kind of, you know, I, that that's the, the element for yeah. me as somebody who hasn't really gotten into the film yet, is that the general dynamics, I mean, Luka Doncic is just still doing what he's doing with Real Madrid. Aiden impressed early and hasn't really done much to dissuade from that. But I, I think maybe the guy at the top that is causing the most Dissension, and we can talk about that briefly. You and I have had extended Marvin Bagley discussions before. Is it does feel like he has become this separator with with different people, and I'm not really sure from what I understand of the debate that either side is wrong. It's just how much you weigh what each side is is saying.
0: Yeah, no, I totally agree with that. I mean, I'm not someone who says Marvin Bagley is a perfect prospect by any stretch of the imagination, but. Here's what I think a lot of people are missing. You know, we talk about this idea of the modern NBA all the time and how uh, one of the key factors of the modern NBA, I think, is – That the tweener position, it used to be between the three and the four, right? Uh, You know, if you were a little bit too big to guard on the perimeter and a little bit too small to guard inside, to guard bigger players whenever the teams traditionally played two big players on the floor, you were kind of in no man's land. Now that no man's land has shifted defensively a little bit more between the four and the five, right? If you're not this elite level rim protector – I think a lot of people try and categorize you as a four now in a lot of ways. And to me, I think that's kind of what's happening with Bagley. People see him as like this almost relic in a way. You know, a guy who is only averaging like a block a game. He's a center ostensibly in the NBA, in my opinion, that isn't going to be this elite level rim protector. I I just don't feel that way at all. And it's weird to me that – A guy who has so many of the intangible tools that we look for within the modern NBA has become this strange lightning rod because he is just not necessarily big enough to be a center because everything else is kind of tailor-made for the modern NBA in his game in my opinion.
2: One of the interesting ideas about Bagley – and this is – it's so hard because of how high he is as a draft prospect – is that there actually are centers that he could fit with. It's just the problem is, like, you know, those centers that can space the floor a little bit and protect the rim, guys like Joel Embiid. The problem is, there are more of those guys now than there ever have been. The problem is, not a lot of those teams are picking in the top five.
0: So, yeah, I mean, here's the deal. Like, I think Marc Gasol is a very good fit for Marvin Bagley, for instance, with Memphis at number four. Uh, I also believe that Marvin Bagley is going to shoot. Like I I full stop think he is going to be a good shooter someday. He's shooting 35% from three. He is 18 years old and he has good mechanics. There's no, there's nothing out there right now that says he should not be able to shoot someday. I get the fact that some people worry about free throw percentage, but as you, you and I have talked about before, I'm not a huge believer in the idea of free throw percentage being more indicative of shooting success than, three-point percentage just uh, in terms of three-point percentage and the ability to space the floor the reason for that being that i just don't see it as uh, you know correlation i get that you know it's it's a true some people say it's like a truer test of shooting skill but how often do you get these like full-on standstill jumpers in the nba where no one's flying at you it's just not a I understand that there is a statistical effect there that people have shown to be true. It, it's just not to me. It's more of a like, like there's no causation there. I guess you know what I mean.
2: Well, I think what the argument is is just that the volume is so different. Because if you if you can make those shots, it's about being a shooter. I think that's really really where it, where it gets down to. The point with Bagley though, I think, is a little bit different because. I wouldn't expect at this point, from what I know, which I admit is limited, for him to be a volume shooter. It's basically, with him, the test is more, will other people respect it, rather than, will it be a centerpiece of his offense? And so, with players like... Try to think of the right I was thinking of all the Duke power forwards like Jabari I think is a good example here you know those type of players it's a bigger part of their offense you know ideally you would want it to be there or the way that Tatum has delivered so far this year so for those guys it's different than somebody like Bagley where it's more like where Embiid might end up where, sure, if the shot is open, you take it. But actually, maybe you use that more to set up other things. And so right. it, it, it affects the other team's defense in a actually a pretty similar way, but it affects your offense in a very different way.
0: Right. So the other factor here is that we have not even talked about like the best factors of Marvin Bagley's game yet. Right. Um, he's leading the ACC in rebounding and in points at 18 years old. That is insane. He has a 60% true shooting percentage in conference against elite play, a 63% true shooting percentage overall. And it's not like Duke plays in a bad schedule outside of the league. It's bizarre to me that this is a conversation that, like, he is. I had someone compare him in my mentions yesterday to Dwight Powell. What? Like, what are we talking about when this stuff happens? Like, Dwight Powell is a good athlete as a center who is fluid who has developed into a decent shooter, who can be in position defensively and move intelligently. Dwight Powell is probably like a 60th percentile athlete among centers. Marvin Bagley is like, the 99th percentile of athlete. He is a physical freak who has like the best second jump that you will see. He is a quick twitch athlete on the perimeter. He's a quick twitch athlete in terms of his second jump. He is incredibly explosive just as a leaper. He, you know, reacts to everything that's happening around him uh, in a faster manner than just about anyone you see on the floor. It's a totally different ball game uh, than, some of these other tweeners that we've seen in the past. It's totally bizarre to me.
2: The part that I've thought about Powell in this, but as a connection in terms of what his role could be, I think Carlisle has used Powell very well. So I think you can use that as the basis, but say, hey, this guy can be way better than that. And a super Powell would be a, a much more useful player than Dwight Powell actually is, and that's something when you when you make comparisons with strengths and weaknesses, the severity of the strengths and weaknesses is also very important, and that opens up other avenues. And Powell is a lot closer to being a fully developed player than Bagley, and so he can correct some of the things that Powell never was able to. And so, he,
0: well, like, isn't Super Dwight Powell like Chris Bosh?
2: <laughs> maybe it, it could be. I mean, Bosh. Well, and the other big difference is that Bosch came, kind of was proto in terms of where the league was going, whereas Bagley gets to come in when that role has already been developed a lot more. And right. that's an interesting distinction that could end up really mattering here. Like You have that where, where Bosch, as great as he was, you could make an argument that he came into the league about five years too early, just because he would have developed that part of his skill set a little bit differently, or even 10 years. I mean, he would be a spectacular player now, but he got right. to play with LeBron and... and weight so that worked out pretty well for him.
0: But let's even say that he doesn't develop Chris Bosh's incredible defensive instincts because that's ultimately what Chris Bosh became in Miami, right? right he that's became why an he absolutely could play the incredible in the defender. way that he did. Right. Okay, let's say he's Amari Stoudemire then. Like Amari was an incredibly quick switch athlete who could essentially do anything he wanted offensively on the basketball floor. Amari Stoudemire is probably going to be a Hall of Famer. Like, (laughs) that's not a bad spot to be if you end up drafting Amari Stoudemire at number three.
2: The other part with Bagley that I think is so interesting, and I I alluded to this a little bit before with the idea of him fitting with a guy like Embiid, is that as it happens, a lot of the teams towards the bottom of this draft are probably going to be there again. And I don't think Bagley precludes you from taking another guy really at any other position and just seeing how it works. Right. You know, there are, there are players that I don't think he's a great fit next to, but if you think he's the best guy available, the only exception to that would probably be the Kings, just because they don't have their own pick next year. So if they, mm-hmm. they get it, it gets a little bit more stickier.
0: But yeah. But the I, thing with the Kings is though, if he's available, they should, and they have like number three. I think they should absolutely take him just because he's going to be productive. We should feel confident Marvin Bagley is going to be productive in some capacity in the NBA. He's going to be so athletic and play so hard and have such good instincts on the glass and have great scoring instincts to the point where he's going to be productive. And that matters to Sacramento. (laughs)
2: Am I thinking that the team, well, so the team for me that I I worry about his fit is Orlando just because if assuming they're keeping Eric Gordon, Aaron Gordon long term, which it sounds like they will, that just isn't enough to me. I mean, they've already had shaky defenses the last few years. But I mean, the two of those guys plus a third guy could be a pretty awesome front court rotation. Like if you are going to play two out of those well, three at any given time.
0: Well, do you know who their third guy is?
2: Is it Isaac? It's
0: Jonathan Isaac. Yeah, Jonathan I, I Isaac. I love John
2: Isaac. So that was that would probably be so my
0: much favorite fun. defensive. Yeah, he was my favorite defensive prospect in the draft last year. He God, just has that would been be hurt. So new agey.
2: Year. It'd be really really fun.
0: Yeah, and like in my last mock draft or in the podcast I did last week or this week, whenever this is being released, I don't know. Um, I. I we talked about Jaron Jackson to Orlando because we liked the idea of them just having an incredibly That's new. That's more
2: interesting to me because right. with him, then you have kind of the three archetypes. You have the you know the rim protector, the, like kind of the defensive guy. You have the the Aaron Gordon kind of you know volume a little bit more, a little bit more off the bounce, and then you have the wild card, the you know John Isaac, where if he can deliver, then you can play him with both those guys.
0: Yeah, no question. I, I totally agree. Like I the the cool thing great. though is that. I don't think that Jonathan Isaac or like I don't think that Marvin Bagley is going to be a tangibly different or, you know, markedly worse offensive shooter than Jaron Jackson, to be honest.
2: That could be true. Yeah, I, I have you. I I trust your evaluation there. And it's a challenge like I, I, there are a lot of these teams. I think my instinct is that this is going to be an eye of the beholder draft from from what I know so far. And the challenge with that is, generally speaking, I would advise every team to take the best player available. So you're going to have this, like, I think you're going to have this pressure with some of these front offices of the scouting, analytics, whoever, saying this is the best guy, and them going, well, you know, maybe this guy's a better fit for where we're going. And, like, how often will those things harmonize? And then with certain teams, will they have to be making a decision? Because a lot of these guys are really close.
0: I 100% agree with that. It's going to be a really really difficult draft at the top i think to mock out or at least it could be i mean it's going to depend a lot on who gets what picks like there are a lot of picks that make extreme sense for some teams like if atlanta gets number one i think they should just take deandre ayton and be happy and pair him with john collins because that's kind of the perfect archetype that you want to pair with john collins um if Phoenix gets the pick. Again, they should take DeAndre Ayton. If Dallas gets the pick, kind of like them taking Luka Doncic because I like the idea of Rick Carlisle being Uh, able to— Doncic
2: and Smith together would be amazing.
0: Right. I mean, I'd be a little bit concerned about the fact that, like, I don't know if I love Dennis Smith playing off the ball regularly. But on the same level, like, I'm just all in on giving Rick Carlisle more creative— opportunities with one of the most creative players in this draft, if not the most creative player in this draft.
2: In terms of... Not necessarily the fit of the personnel, but in terms of that part of it that I think Doncic to Dallas is the one that I would want the most just because I feel most confident that Carlisle would use him properly. And also a lot of these teams in the bottom, like we don't exactly know where they're going long term. You know, Jaeger, maybe he'll be the Kings coach for a while. The Suns obviously are going to be hiring a new coach. And so Carlisle is going to be there and Carlisle is going to do a great job. So yeah, if they can get that, I would fully support it. And also, you, you, the idea of, like, well, if the Hawks are a really good fit for Aiton and I, I can see some of that, then if another team gets one and they get two and the one team takes Doncic, then it works out as well, too.
0: Yeah, I mean, Dave Yeager looks just incredibly unhappy every time he takes the floor with Sacramento. <laughs> he, he's not a guy that didn't, that enjoyed playing young players when he was in Memphis, and now he has a full team of them without any real well, adults.
2: And not only that, real adults. Had, i mean they had all those veterans early in the year and i'm sure he was part of what was pushing for that because that makes a lot of sense but they couldn't turn that into anything because they just weren't good enough and i I think and like
0: george hill just stopped trying
2: (laughs) yeah that's a problem too and i think sacramento overall came out of came out of the deadline okay i mean they basically the biggest thing they did was they got out of about 10 million they owe to george hill and I'm okay with that. You know, they weren't going to really turn him into the. This is an interesting idea, and it's Nate has used the term of like the proportion of dead money on a contract, and the problem that's it's it's the right idea to have. The challenge, though, is when a player has so much money on their contract that matters too, and and I'm not saying like Nate was wrong. It's it's just that there are these two factors. This is the same thing with Alan Crab where. Alan Crabb is not as good as his contract and that's okay. But if you ever wanted to move that player, you don't get to, you know, it takes a certain thing to take on $20 million or that sort of thing. So even though I'm not sure Sacramento is going to do the, do a ton with that extra $10 million, I think it's good that they have it.
0: Right. Like it's harder. So like, say that you have a $10 million player who is just not an NBA player anymore. And the contract is $10 million underwater or you have an $18 million player that is probably worth $8 million and is $10 million underwater, that's essentially the same amount that is going against your cap that you're not getting use out of, but it's much more difficult to move the $18 million player because it's a lot harder to match salaries at that level.
2: Yeah, unless you're willing to take on these 2016 contracts that run an extra year. That would actually have been the best value for George Hill if they wanted to do it, but that's a an incredibly different conversation for any team to have. And that's why, shock of shocks, we didn't see any of those contracts get moved because I don't think any teams were willing to foreclose that without just an absolute ransom. And nobody was willing to pay that ransom yet. And you you like the cap stuff too. So I think this is a good little short thing to, to discuss with going into that before we get back into the draft stuff is this idea that we saw that a lot of teams just aren't really sure exactly what their constraints are going to be. And mm-hmm. so that led to them just being cautious. And a good example of this is the Milwaukee Bucks. Like the Milwaukee Bucks very well could need to clear a little bit of money next year to get under the tax, depending on how much Jabari gets. But they don't know how much Jabari is going to get. They don't know exactly how all these pieces, they don't know exactly where the cap's going to be. So they kick the can down the road a little bit with the idea being, hey, we might not have to deal with this. So why would we sacrifice an asset right now to move, let's say, Mirza Toledovich to move mm-hmm. Toledovich right now when it's entirely possible that we won't have to, especially when teams are asking for a ton right now.
0: Well, the, the other thing with moving that money, if you're Milwaukee as well, is that I think it seems relatively likely they're probably going to keep their pick, right? Like we can say it feels relatively likely. They're going to be able to trade their pick after they make the selection, and attach it to money to someone else if they want to, right? Like, they can make their pick for someone else, and with the Stepian rule guidelines, they can essentially make that pick for someone else and then trade that pick and, and use it. It was a little bit tougher for them to do that with a 2019 pick this year because they'd already traded a portion of their 2018 pick for Eric Bledsoe.
2: Yeah, that's a really good point, and the Stepien rule does open that up. It was this; it would have been the same logic with the Lakers and some of their guys, but they were able to get off of J- Jordan Clarkson without having to include a pick. So, that
0: part you grew. guys hate Jordan Clarkson?
2: Hate is a strong word. <laughs> I I do not think that a player with his strengths and weaknesses is particularly useful for a team with lofty aspirations.
0: Yeah, I, I generally do agree with you. Like after the trade like you and i like you know kind of went back and forth on it real quick on g chat and like we neither of us were super high on it for cleveland obviously but with clarkson like i think that Clarkson that deal is probably like four million dollars a year underwater like i think he's probably pretty damn close to a mid-level exception player and if you're getting that and you have to find a way to get off of that i don't think it's that hard to get off of that contract really the problem
2: with it was the duration, just because teams right. aren't willing to... If it, if he had the same contract, but it expired one year sooner, it would have been no problem whatsoever. Then that would have right. been there. But it's that that second year, so twenty, the 2019-20, that would have given a lot of teams the queasiness, and that's why there's been some reporting that there weren't that many teams that were interested in, in taking on Clarkson. And that's just as a practical matter. But it will be a great test of context here, because Clarkson has largely played kind of... He's played with without another point guard, but he hasn't really done the true off-ball experience. And I want to see he looked great in that game on on Sunday against the Celtics playing with Mm -hmm. LeBron. And if the reason that he hasn't been as effective as a shooter is just because the context because he hasn't had those opportunities, then I'll think about him very differently. And it does get into that extrapolation part of this, which is relevant when we get into these draft guys of the importance of certain elements that you might have. And so there are a lot of players who like you're never going to be able to replicate what you're doing in college in the pros. And so it's how does playing with and against better players affect your value to a team?
0: Well, with Clarkson, too, the part of this that intrigues me with Clarkson is that The Lakers have largely played without any floor spacing on their team over the course of the last three years. I think they've been 29th, 22nd, and 30th over the course of this year, the year before that, and the year before that one in three-point percentage. And when that's the case, I think it's going to be interesting to see him as a second-unit scorer – That can actually play with lineups with floor spacing now because he is an athlete who can get into the lane. He is an athlete who can make plays for his teammates. I'll be interested to see if, you know, how it works with LeBron. I'm not entirely clear. I agree with you. I don't think he's a guy you really ever want playing with LeBron. But I am intrigued by the idea of using him as a second unit scorer in the, you know, 10 minutes a game in the playoffs or whatever, or in the hopefully 18 minutes a game in the regular season where you're not playing LeBron, using him in second units that actually have the proper amount of floor spacing to make it conducive to his skills.
2: Yeah, I'm excited to see that too. And Cleveland now just has a lot of options. That's part of why I like right. the collective moves for them is that there are things that if it works, great. If it doesn't work, they, they throw in something else and they will be going through all of this stuff over the next couple of months. And then, of course, they will add in Kevin Love at some point. And that will add a whole nother slew of options. And They will probably get challenged earlier in the playoffs than they have before just because the East looks better right now. But when you have LeBron James, when you have the talent they have, they're going to be in a good place. And so basically what they – the the advantage they get is assuming they get a top-four seed, which is what I expect at the moment, they will get around maybe two – probably one to figure this out before they have to face one of the more put together teams like the Celtics and the Raptors who know what they are and know what they're going to do, whether that's going to work in the playoffs is different, but, but they're not going to be adjusting as much as Cleveland as some of these other East teams that are incorporating new talent and everything else.
0: Right. And look, I'm not, I think I was probably even a little bit more down on you on their collect or more down than you on their collective moves because I don't think that these moves made it a certainty for them to get out of the East, but what they did was they took on a substantial amount of long-term money, potentially $20 million, $20 to $25 million next year, and even more than that going forward, depending on what Rodney Hood's deal could be. So I'm concerned about that more than anything. I'm more concerned about their ability to either maneuver around these players if LeBron decides to stay – and, you know, continue to try and compete with these guys because, you know, they're going to have to add more, I think, to compete with the Warriors, or their ability to retool on the fly if LeBron was to leave. I I understand why they did it, and it certainly made them a better team. Now, I'm worried about the long-term ramifications for an upside in the short term that doesn't include, in my opinion, at least, a likely NBA title or even anything close to a likely NBA title.
2: Yeah, I think that's fair. We'll be back to the program in a moment, but first, a message from TrueCar. Here are some useful car tips you might not be aware of. A coffee filter and a little bit of olive oil can clean your interior. Removing excess weight from your car will improve gas mileage and you can place your key fob to your chin to increase its range. Weird, right? Well, here's another tip you might not know about. TrueCar also helps people get used cars. That's right. True Car isn't just for buying new cars. With their certified dealer network and nationwide inventory of nearly 1 million used cars, you'll enjoy real pricing on actual inventory and a simpler buying experience. Whether you buy new, or used. And with TrueCar, users can see what others paid so they know they're getting a good deal before buying. They're also more likely to enjoy a faster buying experience by connecting with TrueCar certified dealers. When you're ready to buy a new or used car, check out TrueCar and enjoy a more confident car buying experience. Some features not available in all states. Now back to the conversation. Let's do a quick discussion of something you and I talked about a little bit before we went on the air with maybe one of the players who could be the most interesting, theoretically, with the Nets pick, depending on where that ends up, is Michael Porter. And Michael Porter Jr. recently announced that he intends to play this year, which is Mm -hmm. wonderful for selfish reasons, and he's capable of making his decisions, whatever he wants to do. But what I think is, is the the most important point with him, since we can't really talk about, you know, how he's looked at Missouri so far, is just talking about the fact that his medical is going to be central in all this i mean teams are just going to want to see what's going on with his back and he can control that information if he wants but that's a little bit of different power when you're more in the five to eight range than where josh jackson was
0: right and And just to kind of you know bounce off of that really quickly before we move into the second part of that so there was like a report out there that his doctor told him or his doctor told konzo or the doctor just said in general that one in ten players who are as young as him you know have this surgery and have a Recurrence of back issues. That's interesting. Also, there's Jeff Stotts' In Street Clothes website that says, you know, lower back injuries in the NBA or back injuries in general in the NBA uh, have a 75% chance of recurrence. So that's the kind of Variance we're dealing with right here. And, and, you know, recurrence can be serious surgery. It can be missing 10 games in your eighth year of play. You know what I mean? Like, there's no saying that it has to be, you know, a life threatening, career threatening injury. But that's the kind of variance you're talking about with opinions on this injury, right? Like, uh, the analytics aren't very positive on it, but Porter's doctors are very positive on it. We'll see who's right. Uh, NBA teams are definitely going to want to get a look at this.
2: They will. And it's such a big investment, even if it's, he's probably not in the mix at number one because of the risk involved here. But the other point is that the medicals are a, an important factor in this. But evaluating Michael Porter Jr. as a player is very different than a lot of these guys because though he is a freshman in college right now, he has been incredibly well scouted over the years because of right. the, what he, he's been touted for a long time because of his presence in all these things. So I don't think there's a lot that he needs to prove as a basketball player during this month or so if he wants to play so be it but he's in a very different place than a lot of guys because we're not wondering those same things and that we would be about a lot of freshmen that haven't played at all
0: yeah so here's a non-exhaustive list and i think this looking at the names here i can think of multiple other events where michael porter has attended but here's a non-exhaustive list exhaustive list of the events that Michael Porter has attended in the past where NBA personnel has been present. 2017 McDonald's All-American event, all of the practices, the game. 2017 Nike Hoop Summit, all of the practices, all of the game. 2017 Adidas Nations, three-day event. 2016 U18 FIBA Americas, multiple USA basketball camps, Nike Basketball Academy. He's been to so many of these different events now that there is – no real mystery for them on what Michael Porter's game is. Uh, he, he, They know him well. Uh, they have seen him more, I would guess, than someone like Daniel Gafford, for instance, at Arkansas. Like Daniel Gafford, I think, is a potential lottery pick, like a late lottery pick, 13th, 14th, something like that out of Arkansas. He has now played like 25 college games. NBA scouts have seen Michael Porter more than they have seen him. You know, Kevin Knox, I think, is probably right on the borderline in terms of if NBA scouts have seen more of Kevin Knox or have seen Michael Porter. And Kevin Knox was a top 10 recruit in this class and a five-star player. So that's the kind of sample that you're talking about here with Michael Porter. He has been seen ad nauseum over the course of the last three years before this year it's not really that big of a deal that he's out. Like there's, it's just kind of not a thing to me in terms of scouting and evaluating his game. They know him well, they know what he can do. The key is going to be, do the medicals come back clean and who gets what pick basically. And, And how, as Danny said, How does the Porter camp or does the Porter camp decide to use the medical reports as leverage to steer him to a certain location? They can pick and choose who they want to get these medical reports if they so desire. And that's going to be a really interesting kind of wrench that gets thrown into this, I guess.
2: I was just thinking about it because I brought up Josh Jackson before. He would be in a much better circumstance if he had gone to the Celtics. Josh Jackson? Yeah.
0: Yeah, I mean, I don't know if that was ever – really going to happen i
2: don't <laughs> um, i mean it sounds like danny Ainge really like jason tatum and there's a reason yeah. why he really liked jason tatum he's but tatum's been better than i than i expected i mean that's pretty pretty well known at this point that he's been better than that and one of the weirdest things about this class is just the lack of really high-end kind of forwards i mean Doncic can pl- defend different positions and so you have these guys like the bridge's I call the Bridges boys is what I call them because they're not brothers or anything with Villanova and Michigan (laughs) state. And maybe, maybe Chandler Hutchinson, like there, there are a few guys kind of in that range, but even though there is this just need thirst for wings especially forward sized wings that's just not the strength of this class even though those guys i'm sure will help teams
0: yeah no especially at the top of the class as you've mentioned already like you said the bridges are going to be useful michael porter is going to be useful as a perimeter based forward basically uh kevin knox and then you get into guys like lonnie walker and troy brown and uh shea alexander and the next guy on my list after that that i think is like a full stop like you know perimeter player is shake milton so that that's those are not going to be guys in my opinion that are massive difference makers. Now some people think Lonnie Walker can be that. He hasn't quite shown us enough there for me to feel confident in it. But he he has that ceiling at the very least. There's just a lot still to be determined in this class. Now for all of the you know strength at the top in terms of big men. You, know, you, you look down through number 25 and down, you know, on my board, I've got Bruce Brown, Melvin Frazier, Landry Shamit, Jerome Robinson, Hamadou Diallo, Jalen Brunson, Anthony Simons, Javon Carter, Vince Edwards, Devontae Graham, Raleigh Elkins, Jacob Evans, Gary Trent, Tyus Battle, Dre Foster, Chris Wilkes, Aaron Holiday, Marcus Howard, Jalen Hudson. That's the range from 25 to 50 for me. So, like, there are no real big guys there. There are like five big guys that I have in that range. So there's going to be a really interesting – you know, eye of the beholder thing again there in terms of you know, which of these guys rise, which of these guys declare for the draft even. That's certainly unclear still. And which of these guys deci- uh, you know, play their way up during the pre-draft process and maybe jump some of these bigger guys like Brandon McCoy and jump a guy like uh, uh, Daniel Gafford or Mitchell Robinson or Robert Williams potentially. It's going to be an interesting pre-draft process, I think, because of that.
2: It is also going to be hard for those bigs because a lot of those guys – are going to be straight fives in the NBA. Uh, that would be, at least it would be my expectation. And there are a yep. lot of good centers in the NBA right now. And so, yes, there is an intense value to a, a center, a young center on a rookie scale contract, if they can play rotation minutes, because then you don't have to pay somebody level exception money <laughs> or something else. Yeah. But also, of course, if they have upside, I mean, Bam Adebayo is a good example here. Yes. He, you know, there are a lot of centers, but it looks like he could be a good one. Pirtle too, you know, like those type of guys, yeah. those guys were drafted in the low double digits. So, and th- and I think those picks are both working out very well for their teams
0: well you know what the other thing about that is though is that it's really i in my opinion at least and you know stephen adams might be a guy that kind of flouts this idea but it takes these guys a long time to play in the nba and get to the point where they can be starting quality like even Clint capella who has been awesome this year and was really good last year it took him like three years to get to the point where like the Rockets should have felt very comfortable starting him in an NBA game. So it's great that you get these guys on rookie scale deals, but it's part, of the, it's part of the catch-22 here. You really have to take the time to develop them and you really almost more than anything have to find a way to develop your scheme around their specific skill sets now.
2: And that's juxtaposed with let's say Josh Hart where older guy plays on the perimeter, stepped right in, he's starting right now for the Lakers. And we know what he is. You can use him. He's You don't build your scheme around him. You have him as a part of your scheme. And so there's a value to having that kind of guy on a rookie scale contract too, where I think he's either 23 or close to it. And he'll be basically in his whole pre-prime on team control and a lot of that on his rookie scale contract. And so there's a value to that type of player as well.
0: Yeah, no, 100%. uh, And that's why... I tend to value those players more Uh and that's why I think a lot of those guys kind of fit in that range of the draft for me. I find incredible value in being able to play a wing as soon as you can. I think that that is the way the NBA is going, and I think that the more flyers you get on perimeter players, the more you should take. Sometimes, though, like this draft at the top, you got to take who you got to take. It, it just kind of is what it is. When DeAndre Ayton is sitting there and he's seven foot one and two hundred and sixty pounds and has a five percent body fat and like is just a total freak who can shoot threes and guard on the perimeter and has potential to protect the rim, sometimes he's got to take the guy who's really good. <laughs>
2: And that's why you really, especially at the top of the draft, have to go best player available unless there's a really, really clear issue not to because ceiling is what matters in, in, at the top end of the draft. I mean, those those type of players are incredibly hard to get. They are val- really valuable. I mean, the surplus value you get, yeah, sure. Josh Hart on a rookie-scale contract is great. You get a whole lot more value from a guy who can even be contending for like an all-NBA spot. And so th- that's right. why you look for that kind of ceiling, even if it's at a position that's a little bit duplicative. And a team that I'm fascinated by just what they do and also with you know having a relatively new front office because it changed over last summer, the Atlanta Hawks have beyond a really high pick. They have two picks in the late first round and have a great reputation for we're developing yep. perimeter
0: players and so, you know the other thing is too they're going to have in addition to that uh, a really really high second round pick
2: that's true and so how are they going to approach this are they I, I mean you can go rigidly best player available that's a lot of things to go best player available and they already have a bunch of guys on their roster and so they're going to swing certain elements as, or do they want to do what portland did last year and mm. combine some of those assets into yep. one better thing and there could certainly be teams especially in an eye of the beholder draft that just go "Eh, we don't really love any of these guys and so maybe somebody you know in the range of like the clippers because they have detroit's pick or their own pick that'll probably be right in that range maybe they can get there maybe they could even get a little higher than that if a team doesn't like who's available to them
0: this is the draft that is going to define atlanta's rebuild i think Think because if I was them, I would not be trading any of these picks or consolidating any of these picks. And a lot of this does depend on who ends up declaring for the draft, obviously. Do some of these guys that are like, you know, early second round picks, potential to jump into the late first, do they decide to come out or not? But this draft is interesting in terms of wing depth. This draft is interesting in terms of point guard depth. I think that, you know, if they would be able to grab a big at the top, and then really hammer home those late wings that they've had such success with early in their careers. This could be a huge, huge draft for Atlanta. They could come away with something like Deandre Ayton, it like in the top three, followed by a Melvin Frazier, Landry Shamet, and Jerome Robinson. We'll say like they could easily come away with all three of those guys. And I think all three of those guys fit exactly what they want to do. They would complement each other. Well, and, It would be an incredible draft for them to be able to come away with so many pieces that could help them as soon as possible. Uh, They're all on rookie scale deals that are all going to be there for the next three years at a cheap price. This could be a massive, massive moment in Atlanta's rebuild. And I think the same goes for Phoenix. Phoenix has more draft capital right now, I think, than anyone because they have what is scheduled to be a top three pick. They have number 15 from their deal with Miami for Goran Dragic, and they have number 32 as well because, you know, their own pick, which is slated at number two right now. Uh, They also have two late second-round picks that will probably be thrown away in some way because that's the dead zone of the draft, and it's really hard to find a contributor there. But this is a huge draft for Phoenix's rebuild too. This is the one that we'll see if Ryan McDonough is making the picks, but, like, this is the one that should round out their young core for the next three years as they try and build around Devin Booker and Josh Jackson and whoever they take here.
2: The other reason those two drafts are so interesting is that Because so few rookies come in and are big contributors to successful teams, the expectation has to be that even if those teams do well, and they very well could, that won't be enough to make their 2019 pick worse substantially. So you could be sitting there going, okay, we build this asset base, and this is sort of the idea for the people who are positive on where the Lakers are, that the Lakers would kind of do, where it's like, okay, we have guys that we're optimistic about, but they're not so good that they're actually making us a good team.
0: Yeah, I mean, the Lakers are in a weird spot just well, and they, in general. And they because... traded away
2: their own pick. But that's kind of the idea right. is right. this, this it's year... It's where they've
0: been over the last couple of years.
2: Right. Like, this year isn't really that sort of an atmosphere just because of, of where all these things are and just the teams at the bottom are, are really bad right now. But when you're bad right now, you'll probably be bad for another couple of years. Kind of like, I guess, the Sixers are another example of, of that. Where, But they drafted injured guys, too. So, But that's the idea is, you know, you draft knowing that you want to take the best player available, knowing that you're going to be building a collection. Another example of this would be like the Houston Astros, where if you're bad for long enough, you just keep yep. on building those assets. And then the hope is that some of them will work out and that you can eventually build a good team out of that. And because in the NBA, sort of like in baseball, though thankfully NBA players get paid a lot more earlier than baseball players do, you get a lot of team control of that. That four years can do a lot. You can you can figure things out. And so the Hawks and the Suns, I'm sure both of them would rather not be where they are right now. But if they embrace that and kind of lean into it a little bit, I think they
0: can do really well. Yeah, 100% agree. We'll see. We'll see the way that this thing goes. This is going to be a very important draft for a lot of teams at the top, just because the talent level at the top is so strong.
2: The other group that this is going to be exceedingly important for are the teams that we expect this to be their only time for a little while. So that would be the Cavs with the Nets pick. The Grizzlies, I mean, we don't know exactly how good they're going to be moving forward, but if
0: you're optimistic. The Grizzlies want to be good.
2: (laughs) They want to be good, exactly. So if they can, so those teams, if they can kind of hit on this pick and then move away, I'm guessing the Knicks wanted to be there at some point, though now with Porzingis being out with the torn ACL, maybe they have to, maybe they move into like a two year drop and
0: then try to move up. But so. The Knicks should be trying as hard as they can to not win a game the rest of the year and then be awful for the first half of next year
2: and if they can do that then they'll have enough they'll have enough runway to win a couple extra games in the second half of next year as they're being judicious with Porzingis and still be fine i mean right. as if if we can do the hypothetical of just push, pushing a pause button on Kristaps Porzingis for one calendar year and then saying he gets back to 100% after that you could make an argument that there are a lot of silver linings here for the Knicks. the reason why it's a question and why why we're so disappointed is because that's not the bet you're making you know it's just you never know if a guy's going to come back all the way especially and he's 7'3", and all that kind of stuff. But
0: yeah, the Knicks, yeah.
2: they needed to get better. They needed a talent infusion, especially with the way they screwed up their cap. So,
0: And, and you know what the other part out. of that that's really tough is, too, is that it seemed like Porzingis himself was trying to push the timeline along. You know what I mean? He keeps saying, I want to make the playoffs now. I want to make a leap now. Now with him on the sideline, there's no pressure there. They, they don't have to worry about that. They don't have to worry about uh, are we pissing off our star by not making the playoffs as early as he wants to make the playoffs. They can just organically grow now in a pretty substantial way. I agree with you. If, if this is just a natural pause in their timeline, it's going to be a very, very, very useful pause for them. <laughs> we
2: could get back to uh, the draft and position that i'm interested in and in looking for your opinion because i just haven't watched much of them at this point in time is what's been happening with with the point guard so we will exclude Doncic for now he can handle the ball and all that kind of stuff but just he's he's so far beyond all these guys that it's a very different conversation and so going into the year i think most of it was sec colin sexton versus trevon duval then yeah. trey young vaulted himself into the conversation and duval largely took himself out of it how are you feeling about that trio and has somebody else worked into that who can be like a a primary ball handler in the NBA?
0: You know, I do think that it's mostly a two point guard draft at this stage in terms of you know, real difference maker potential. I think Colin Sexton is going to be a starter in the NBA. No question. He's a killer. He has the mindset. He has the mentality. He has attitude, everything you're looking for in terms of a lead ball handler. You just have to worry that the shot's going to come along at some point. As long as that does, he'll be fine. Trey Young is the one who is going to either save a general manager's job or he's going to get him fired. I think he's one of those swing players in this draft. Some people are huge fans for right reasons, right? He totally changes the geometry of a basketball game. He is able to pull up from 30 feet. And as we've seen with Stephen Curry, and we'll talk about that in a second, when you can do that, it puts so much added pressure on the defense that it creates totally different angles that they have to worry about defensively. Even when the Warriors didn't have Kevin Durant, that was a tough thing that defenses had to deal with with them. So whenever you throw in that idea and you throw in that Trey Young can also be an incredible passer in the open floor and he has a great floater game and uh, he's incredibly polished off the bounce, there's a lot there to like. But we've seen Trey Young now in a collegiate system that is essentially college basketball on steroids, right, because Lon Kruger actually knows what he's doing. He built a system around spread, pick and roll with five shooters on the floor at all times. NBA teams, for the most part, are probably going to be able to do that. You know, you would hope that the team he gets drafted to is going to be able to do that. I just wonder if some of the incredible, obscene, ridiculous numbers we've seen from Trey Young so far are more a product of that as opposed to, like, if you would put him in Kentucky's system where he almost went – You would have a very cluttered floor. You would have a very messy floor. You would have less space for him to operate and you would have more athletes to get out and transition, but you would have fewer, you know, incredible opportunities to make great drives into the paint and plays where you can get separation with your change of pace and change of direction dribble. It's just harder to do that when the floor is cluttered. So he's a guy that not only do you have to trust his ability to gain separation, but you also have to trust, uh, his, ability to cut down turnovers in traffic and you have to cut trust his ability to eventually try on defense because he has not really tried this year at all i don't think
2: trying on defenses is, is important i mean offense is central to trey young's value but Something that we've seen with Isaiah is a good example of this is just kind of how that can cascade through a team. It didn't affect Boston at all last year, but it seems like it did affect Cleveland. Not that he was their only bad defender. They had a multitude of problems on that end. But especially with a young team, and he's almost definitely going to be going to a young team, that's a challenge. And also because I think it's going to take Trey Young a little wild figured out like he has tools that i think are going to project well but the adjustment to vastly superior athletes to the way the coaching staff and strength and conditioning and all that stuff works it's going to take him time and it's going to take a team time to figure out what you want to put around him and that's Mm -hmm. not necessarily a bad thing it's just a realism thing that is going to going to be there and my instinct is that you know, I like Trey Young with the the capability of a shot, you kinda go, Oh man, it'd be really cool if he could if you could use him off the ball, but I think he wants the ball in his hands a lot. So like the he idea of, yeah. of him going to a team that already has another ball dominant player. Like I think that's there's a concern there. The good fortune for them for him is that a lot of the teams, especially now that the Phoenix is kind of if they fall far enough that they're not going to be in the space to pick him or they'll pick somebody higher in the draft than him, like that's one that would have scared me, him and Booker. I mean, they would have scored a billion jillion points, but there are limitations there. But so, you know, the, but there aren't that many teams in that mix, you know, more in the four to ten range that have that guy now. So maybe he'll get the space that he needs to get that, you know, the, the space within handling the ball to make it work.
0: The terrifying one is Orlando. Orlando. They have a significant positional need for him, and, I mean, come on. Like, look at who's on that roster shooting threes right now. Like, that would be a significant problem if he went there, I think. Memphis, I think, would present some issues, although they're trying to go to more of a modern scheme. Cleveland, we don't know what that roster will look like. The one that I love the most, honestly, is Chicago, because for as much crap as Fred Hoiberg has gotten over the years— That's what he wants to run. He wants to run that spread pick and roll system. And with guys like Zach Levine and Lowry Markinen already there, it would present a very interesting offensive scheme to where I actually think that it could really work for Trey Young in Chicago.
2: How would you feel about him if the Knicks fall far enough to get Young? I think just the long-term potential of Young and Porzingis creating something that teams just can't deal with
0: would be really fun. Yeah, I would love that. I think that would be really, really interesting in terms of the way he would. I I can see him being really bad his rookie year in New York because they would have no other real floor spacing around him. Like Courtney Lee can shoot, but they don't really have anyone else who's going to be like a significant floor spacer for him, you know? That
2: would be, Uh, you could make, create a spectacular, not even stealth tank, just outright tank team. If you just went, hey, let's start a backcourt of Trey Young and Frank Nelkina. And without Porzingis right. and, like, those two guys and maybe Courtney Lee, they could also try to trade him. Lance Thomas and, like, Cantor. You could, div- you could do some truly glorious stuff to set yourself in position that even if Porzingis comes back and does well, you're still going to be having a really strong pick in 2019.
0: And I love the idea of pairing him and Nilakina too. I think it's a really, really interesting idea because Nilakina to me, has always been been more of a secondary creator who plays a little bit off ball and, you know, does the little things. He is a good creator who defends, who can knock down threes and, you know, provides energy more than provides elite-level playmaking. There's an intense value to doing that, by the way. I'm not crapping on Nilekina, and I think that his ceiling is certainly higher than that. But uh, if he turns out like that, I think that would be a great outcome for him. And pairing Trey Young with a guy like that I think would be great for his development.
2: Defensively, my vision for Nilkina, and there's incredible value in this, is something like what Clay Thompson has done with the Warriors, where you put this guy on whichever guard of the other team, you feel... Most scared by, and then you you can use them to switch as well. And that it's sometimes hard to find a compliment for it, and that's why Trey Young I think is a very interesting fit because he can play because he can do so much on ball that nilkina can go there. And if they're theoretically if they're doing those two eventually with Porzingis probably at the five, then you're getting the four spacing at other places. Like I think if you could go that route, you would need a ton of forwards, but you could actually get it done. And The way that a lot of these teams need to be thinking about this draft in particular is just not that this player is going to be your finishing piece, but they're a piece that you can use to eventually build a team.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, You know, a team like that, I think that's really interesting is Memphis, right? Memphis is in a place where they think they have their guys. They think they have Mike Conley and Mark Gasol as two of who they believe, in my opinion, are top 30 to 35 players in the league despite their age. And if you can get a guy like Marvin Bagley who can come in immediately and contribute, if you get a guy like, you know, Mikhail Bridges, if they end up in the like seven range, who can come in and contribute on the wing immediately, that's going to provide value for them. And that's going to be a piece for them that they can build around. But also, who's not a finishing piece for them? It's more of a uh, a building block, you know. And that's one thing that is interesting to me about some of these players, right? You mentioned earlier in the idea of Marvin Bagley, where he is a player that doesn't limit you really in the way that you have to. Uh, build around him kind of right I do think you probably need a rim protector next to Marvin Bagley uh, you need to find someone who can be a really good weak side rim protector but you know other than that I don't think he limits you DeAndre Ayton doesn't limit you at all in what you do you know Trey Young does limit you though Trey Young you need to find more perimeter defense Full stop. You have to find perimeter defense. Uh, the antithesis of that is Jaron Jackson, where Jaron Jackson, you believe, can pretty much do anything. And uh, maybe he's not going to do it at a superstar level, but he is the best complementary piece in this draft, maybe. And that has intense value. So it's really interesting to me. Not only in terms of teams have to find these building block pieces, but it's really interesting in the way that these pieces will either limit or not limit you in terms of the way that you build going forward.
2: Talking about Jaron Jackson, in particular, the way you did, made me think about Dallas. And Dallas is a huge swing piece in this, not only because of their ability to, to cultivate and maximize talent, I'm such a believer in Rick Carlisle, but because... They're one of the only teams that has the double of being relevant in the free agent market and also having a draft peak because they could be saying like they could be looking at this in in a couple of different ways. One is, hey, if we take a center in this class, if that's who we like best, then we don't have to pay a center. And, you know, the centers in this market have flaws they are also really good. I mean, if De- if DeMarcus Cousins can get to anything close to where he was, phenomenal offensive talent, somebody who Dallas could use really well. DeAndre Jordan's a little bit older, and I think, you know, but th- but there certainly is value to that too. But you can also go the other way, which is the, kind of the, the next level thinking for Dallas that I would actually love, which is, Maybe we bypass both of those things. And if we can get a guy, I mean, Doncic would be the dream, but if they get get somebody who's not a big, then also not overpay a big because we can develop them like what they've done with Dwight Powell and then use that money on somebody else. Then you're sitting there and going, hey, they're affecting the draft pick slots. They're affecting free agency, but mm-hmm. they're creating more value that way, arguably than they are. And a lot of that is based on supply. But that's why I think Dallas is a big piece here because they can control multiple parts of the process themselves.
0: Yeah, and a lot of it's going to come down to those discussions that they have with agents and discussions that they have with representation even before the draft happens. If they know that they're a player in the DeMarcus Cousins sweepstakes and they have the fourth overall pick, is it worth them in that scenario taking a flyer on Michael Porter's health? Or do you take – do you find out you're not going to get to Marks Cousins and you just take Jaron Jackson because you feel more safe with Jaron Jackson? That's going to be a really interesting process for Dallas particularly to navigate. Uh, I'm trying to think of other teams. Chicago is going to be like that too as well. Chicago can control multiple sides of this if they can pitch free agents on being part of – a team that has shown that they can go on nice long win streaks this year already when their young players are playing well. Uh, I think that basically all of their young players so far have shown signs of development when you would like even, even Chris Dunn who, you know, I think everyone in the basketball community was relatively down on as a top five pick after last year, he's shown signs at the very least of uh, being a respectable pro. He's, uh, you know, averaging 14 points and six rebounds and playing in or six assists and playing incredible perimeter defense while, you know, still being an incredibly inefficient shooter. But, you know, we have to hope that that part of his game is at least a catch and shoot player comes around. So, uh, plus you throw in Lowry Markinen, who's been really good, and you throw in, uh, Zach Levine, who has at least shown little worse for the wear, I would say is the best way to put it. After coming back from injury, maybe just slightly worse scoring from two point range. And we have to hope that that will bounce back a little bit. But it's going to be a really interesting summer for teams like Dallas and Chicago and the Clippers, who have two really, really high draft picks as well, and how they decide to handle those those circumstances. Philadelphia, too, two top 18 picks right now.
2: Yeah, that's true. The Sixers, because right now I would say it's probably more likely than not that they're going to get the the Lakers pick. Which, you talk about how the, that affects yeah. the Celtics moving forward. Holy crap, if they get the, just the unprotected Kings pick,
0: that's something that, that can be used. But It's terrifying for the rest of the NBA, by it, the way. It should be.
2: And so, the, this, yeah, those teams, how they want to approach it. And the Sixers, that's, that's true with them. The point I made about Dallas, they can affect the free agent market as well and, and how they want to approach this. And so, yeah.
0: It's... Real quick, if the Marcus Cousins was to leave New Orleans, I'm a proponent of them trading Anthony Davis. There is no team in the league that, can top that Kings pick in terms of a singular asset for Anthony Davis?
2: Yeah, probably not. Uh, I would say so. Just for a hot second, I was thinking about if the Sixers would have enough assets to trade for Davis without moving Simmons or Cousin or Simmons or Embiid. Oh my God, that'd be fun.
0: I don't think they do. I don't, I don't think they do. Think so. I mean, Boston. Boston could legitimately put an offer together with Jalen Brown and that Kings pick.
2: They could do it a lot of different ways. I mean, Smith or Tatum, Kings pick. But then they have all these other lower end assets that they could that aren't essential to their team but are incredibly useful right. you could you mean know, Terry Rosier is untradeable, but Terry Rosier, all these extra picks, not only the one, their own pick this coming season, but then they have that Memphis pick, which is varying degrees of interesting, depending on how good or bad you think Memphis is that pick. I forgot about that. Yeah. So they have that, that Grizzlies pick is top eight protected next year, 2019 top six protected in 2020. And so, yeah, you could. Certain teams would be saying they're going. Wow, that that could be really good. It could also just hold off for a couple of years. But actually, you could make a really interesting argument that Memphis thinking they're good helps that. Like maybe that pick is ten next year. They also have the Clippers' first round pick next year if they make the playoffs. So <laughs> there's value in that. Like, yeah, it, the the Celtics just have a crazy a crazy asset collection, and I'm going to write a piece on this at some point. The big question for them is going to be what like a do they want to make a move and they have all this weird the weirdest issue they have is with salary filler they have no they have no flotsam in terms of salary ballast is the word for it but it's it's more about when that player is going to be available because they are completely at the whim of these other teams because they can't force you know there's no trade override button in real life you can make the best offer that exists, you can make an offer that the other team should, shouldn't refuse, like the rumored pit for uh, the one that they would have gotten for Justice Winslow, which the if it's true, the Hornets were absolute fools to turn down. At a certain point, if a team just values that thing, They're not going to trade it. And that's why uh, part of the reason why a hardened trade hasn't happened since is because the teams that have those guys. And the other big thing that's running against the Celtics, at least for now, is that they've added in the designated veteran extensions because now there is a, a piece of control that didn't exist when some of those trades were happening. And so now, let's say the Bucks with Giannis. You know, Giannis, spectacular player, franchise cornerstone. Milwaukee has a reason to be more optimistic at the moment about their chances of keeping him because they can offer him more money than anybody else and they can do it early. So until we start to see players giving the indication that they're not willing to sign those contracts or a situation more like what happened with Boogie and Paul George where maybe the team wasn't willing to give it, or Jimmy Butler is another good example of this, then that's something different. But if we're talking about the true earthquake-type guys, I think you, that's more like Davis, where the team would be a fool not to offer it.
0: Who, who is the next earthquake guy? I think it's I Davis. mean, other than, a, other than Anthony Davis, we'll say. Because, like, Anthony Davis is, I think, the obvious answer, but, so, like...
2: The one that's been in the back of my mind, and it's going to be crazy because if it happens, we're going to know right away, and people like us are going to go insane instantly. Is if Kawhi doesn't sign his designated veteran extension. Because if he doesn't sign it, then he is an unrestricted free agent. Because basically, if he does that, then it'll be an unrestricted free agent. He could still, of course, go back to San Antonio, but he would be, you know, that would be a challenge. You know, he'd be going back there. And so if San Antonio if he turns that down or do they have the ability to stick with their guns to say hey he's leaving this much money on the table especially with what's happened this year oh man that that to me is the is the next possible one I think it's exceedingly unlikely I think the Spurs are going to offer it and he's going to take it but think about how crazy it's going to be if that happens that teams are just gonna, like I mean then the offers pouring cuz Kawhi Leonard last year was an MVP candidate and yeah. he's you know prime or pre-prime Depending on, of course, what happens with his quad tendon. So that's the other one that could be there off. Outside of that, it's probably going to be a little while because of the hard. designated veteran type stuff. I mean, maybe there will be a guy who who's willing to turn that down. But it's worth noting, no person has yet. There yeah. were four players who were eligible for it the first year it was available, which was last off season. All four of them signed it. A couple of those, most notably the John Wall one, might not be looking great right now, but they all signed it, and that's and it, and. I think it looks good to all four of those players right now as well.
0: I mean, like, I have no indication at all that this is a possibility at all. This is just me making, you know, conversation. I mean, like, is it insane if Bradley Beal decides, eh, I don't know how I feel about John Wall's injury. I don't know? think,
2: I think of him as the tear down. You know, I like, agree, generally. To, like, to but... me, so to me, there's, so there are a couple thresholds here. So one is players who could be, like, first team All-NBA, like that to me, or who like, or have that potential. They don't have to do it right away. James Harden wasn't first team All-NBA when okc traded him
0: i think that's kind of what i'm getting at with like bradley beal like could he be like the next like harden guy he's 24 he's young man i
2: i just i think he's more of a support player he can be a good one i mean he can be an all-star he he is an all-star that that sort of thing i think he's i think he's even a step down from like jimmy butler right now but he has the potential to get into that tier more like a third team all nba i think he can be there
0: sure No, I agree with you there. I I think that's the most likely outcome.
2: People don't think of him this way, but it's probably in terms of impact, probably around where the DeMarcus Cousins trade was. DeMarcus is so much more physically talented and all that kind of stuff. But in terms of impact, I think that's a reasonably close facsimile.
0: Yeah, I mean like DeMar DeRozan too. Like DeMar, he's probably like in the DeRozan class.
2: Yeah, I guess.
1: Hmm.
0: I mean, like if this was to go south on Toronto next year, you can easily see a circumstance where they blow this up. You know what I mean? And Demar Derozan would probably come available in that scenario.
2: He probably would. I mean, yeah, I I think Toronto they're they're well positioned right now, and yeah, we'll see where it goes. And then
0: yeah, you know. that's like one of my favorite that they might be my favorite team in the NBA right now. By the way,
2: they're so much fun to watch, and I love the way they use their depth. Yeah, they the, the, they've given they've empowered these guys to to be in the right positions, and.
0: Freddy and, double V's, baby.
2: Freddy double V's. I mean, Purtle has had a nice year. OG has looked good. They're not asking him to do a ton. I think he's done a nice job with that. And I'm excited to see them in the playoffs for the first time in a while. I think since the first time they made it in. And that's a great step. And considering their talent at the top end is largely the same, but also DeRozan has gotten so much better. I mean, hes I think the best way that I can phrase this is he is now as good as like his stands thought he was back when they used to criticize me and others for being
0: critical of him. Yeah, Yeah, no, I agree. Like back in 2014, people thought he was incredible. He was good
2: yeah and so and and i i'm i'm thrilled for that you want every player to do well you want them to maximize it and he gets a lot of credit for working so far into his nba career i mean he's in his second contract right now he might even be in his third
0: no he's in his third
2: he's in his third that's right yeah that's right he signed it signed it last yeah that's right i wrote that piece about how toronto shouldn't resign him yeah that's the thing that happened but
0: i, I remember sitting down one time and He was in Southern California. I was talking to John Gavoni over at ESPN now, Draft Express at the time. And he was like, Are you crazy that you might not sign DeMar DeRozan? Are you stupid? And I was like, I don't know. Like, it's going to tie up their cap sheet long term. And he was right. (laughs) Do do not doubt John. John was right.
2: (laughs) Let's hop back to the draft a little bit quickly. How are you feeling about the the Miami guys at this point? I mean, they're interesting because they're they're kind of in this range where they could really help a team, but I think they need a confirmed case. Lonnie Walker's look good when I've seen him play, which admittedly has not been a ton, but they're going to need to. They're going to need to differentiate themselves, I think is probably a good way to put it.
0: I mean, Lonnie Walker has been really good uh, over the course of the last month and like week maybe. Uh, he's averaging like 16 points over that time, 17 points. He's doing it on efficient shooting. It, he was a guy that you have to remember too that had off-season knee surgery. So it probably took him a little bit of time to kind of get back into the swing of things, get back into the run of play a little bit. Uh, Bruce Brown, speaking of injury, is out right now. Bruce Brown is going to be out at least until the beginning of March. So – I don't really know what to think of his stock. I think he might be best off returning. The thing with him is, though, he's a sophomore that, if I remember correctly, turns 22 midway through next year, or maybe even like in the early par- early portion of next year. So it's a tough spot for him. If, if I was him, I would probably try and return him, boost my stock again. He's always going to have suitors because he is an athlete who plays incredibly hard and who can defend and who can play in the pick and roll a little bit but like, like if Kyrie Thomas is going to be a first round pick, uh Bruce Brown I think can basically always be, you know, a late first, early second round pick. It's just a tough spot I think for Brown because we're not we haven't seen his best this year already and he's not going to get to show it unless they make a deep run in the NCAA tournament.
2: I hope they do. I li- I've liked watching Miami the limited amount that I have, but yeah, with Brown being out, he's going to have a, a lower chance to show it, but Lonnie Walker has been good and It is funny that you that you heard me say the Clippers because I do think that they'd be an interesting fit for him.
0: Right? Yeah. Like there's just like they're right there in that range, and it would make sense to me for them to you know sit down and go, Hey, Lonnie Walker, that guy makes some sense for us. Uh, You know, we should probably shore up the center spot with one of these picks, and we should get a perimeter player with one of these picks. And I think Lonnie Walker makes a lot of sense for them. He's a high upside player who I think can play next to. Uh, Pat Beverly can play next to Milos Teodosic. He can play next to any sort of player they want to put next to him. So I really like the idea of him with the Clippers.
2: The Clippers also presumably will go into that draft with a lot of uncertainty surrounding who's going to be on their team long term because right. DeAndre is presumably going to opt out. He'll be a free agent.
0: How do you feel about that, by the way?
2: About what part of it?
0: Should DeAndre opt out?
2: Yeah, I think he should because... His his agent's going to have to do a lot of work. But yeah. the idea is not necessarily his first year value. I think it's entirely possible that he won't get paid as much as his option. Right. But when you are getting to your early thirties and you're a big man, you need to, and, and assuming long term money is important to him, which it right. probably is, you want to make sure that you get that contract at a point you when you can because you never know when it's going to go off. And he has been an Iron Man, missed a, missed a couple of games due to a ankle sprain this year, and I thought I was going to pass out just because he, he hasn't, <laughs> but. Those what is the threshold
0: that you think he has to make?
2: That's a good question.
0: Because like if he's at 17 okay, next year, So he's
2: turning down 25. I would say right. 15 is probably the – like if if he if – the, if there's a reasonable chance that he could get less than 15, then you start seriously thinking about it. But if he can get 15 or more and I, I fully expect that he can get 15 or more, then I would opt out.
0: I don't know if I agree with 15. I think 15 is too low because if you think about it. He could be a what $25 dollars $25 in the first year, and then he would need to make thirty-five in the next three years essentially to get to fifteen a year in terms of AAV, right? So that would be eleven point seven or so, right? I think he can make eleven point seven for sure next year. I think the number has to be like he has to be able to make nineteen or twenty almost. Maybe maybe eighteen at least to get to the point where it's worthwhile for him to opt out, right?
2: Well, the reason why I think it's different is just because of the downside risk. If something happens there, I mean, yeah, because there, there, there is no reason to think that there's a basement on his value of like 10 million. You know, if he got hurt or if he just doesn't look, you know, it doesn't look as dominant anymore, the line for centers that you should pay is, is getting, is getting yeah. higher and higher now as their supply is getting larger and as the demand is getting lower. So yeah. if you're not a top 15 to 20 center, you probably shouldn't get paid. Like that's basically where this is kind of going, unless you could eventually become a yep. top fifteen to 20, top fifteen to twenty player. So I don't know when the league is going to fully get wise to that. It could be this off season, it could be never. That it's just that's <laughs> big men big men are always so challenging in that way because are well, it's because
0: some... the history of the league. The, right. In in the league's history, it's been dominated by big men. So well, many and, people and... still believe that it's useful. And don't get me wrong, big men are still incredibly useful.
2: Yeah, and, and there needs to be a differentiation here between like top five centers and everybody else. Because yeah, I mean, look at Joel Embiid. Joel Embiid has been so huge for the Sixers this year. Carl anthony Towns, when he actually gets to shoot the ball, has been massive. DeMarcus, as limited as he is defensively and as infuriating as he can be at times, I mean, he can be a wonderful, wonderful player too. And Jokic has been, you know, he's he's unlocked a lot with the Nuggets and all those type of guys. So those players are still valuable, and theoretically, like if a Shaq caliber player came into the league, they would be a monster too. You would they would be defended very differently now than they were back then, but they would still be be there. It's just they, that... they
0: would also be developed differently. Like that's oh, yeah. kind of my that's kind of my thing with DeAndre Ayton. Like I wonder if DeAndre Ayton is kind of the modern era of Shaq. You know what I mean? The shot like isn't super natural looking. You know what I mean? Like it's, he still like points himself toward the basket a little bit unnaturally and shoots it way far away from his head. But it goes in because he's developed that skill set over the course of the years. Now he's also seven foot one, 260 pounds at 19 years old. Like is kind of that the natural progression from Shaq at LSU in 1990 to DeAndre Ayton, Arizona. Thirty years later.
2: Yeah, it very well could be. And you know, Shaq at that time, I'm I'm guessing he would have enjoyed taking some threes. He would have dominated inside too. But you could strike mm-hmm. that balance in a different way now than you could then. And yeah, I th- much yeah, much
0: yeah. in the same way DeAndre Ayton does. He shoots 75, 76 percent in around the basket. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, that's certainly fair. And so, and and the other part of this is I uh, talked about the like top fifteen to twenty. If we keep having one or more of the guys with that kind of potential, I mean, there are more than one in this class, that also decreases the value of guys in the league that are more established and a little bit, you know, like lower ceiling. And DeAndre at this Mm -hmm. point, you know, I don't think there's a reasonable path now where you could expect he's going to be a top 10 center for the next like three years, because he's arguably not one right now, and he's only going to get older, and a lot of these young guys are going to get better. So... I would strike while the iron is hot, but players like him are exactly why agents make their money because they need to know where yeah. that's going. And and sometimes it also involves the players' stuff because if he opts in – actually, and I would also have to talk to the Clippers because I, I think if he opts in, the Clippers wouldn't trade him because that would be really – that would suck for him if he's like, well, I'm going to opt in because that's the easiest way for me to stay in L.A. And then they trade him. That would suck. But, yep generally speaking that sort of thing as well like aaron baines left money on the table he turned down an option that was more lucrative than what he signed for with the celtics but i think he's pretty happy about that i would guess if he he had to ask him about it i mean he's on a, a team that's using him pretty well and that's competing for stuff so you have all of these different ideas and you're trying to maximize what makes your client happy which is not always the same as maximizing their money though it often
0: is yeah i just got an email in my inbox for Basketball Without Borders, because we're recording this before All-Star, right? And the coaches for Basketball Without Borders, Al Horford, Goran Dragic, Damanis Sabonis, Timofei Moskov, right? Makes total sense. Sam Decker. Sam Decker is the fifth coach for Basketball Without Borders.
2: Well, he's going to be there.
0: Yep. The American American dude from Wisconsin, just chilling, chilling, (laughs) coaching. He's like 23, two or whatever. It's just a funny deal, isn't it?
2: Oh, there would be so much more than what it feels like Tay Dosich.
0: <laughs> yeah, like Milos would have been perfect. Milos came over, like, you know, Milos might be going to the Caribbean or something to hang out for, like, a couple of days. But, yeah, Sam Decker. I just thought that was hilarious that he's the fifth coach.
2: That's awesome. Anything else that you think is more pertinent? I mean, so this is probably we'll record now and then we'll do something more close to the NCAA tournament, yeah. probably in that sort of range. Is there anything you're looking for in the next month? That to to watch kind of the end of the conference season.
0: I'm always looking for the ri- like right now. I'm looking for the risers. I'm looking for the guys that can get up into that late lottery range. Can get up into the twenty range. The guys, I'm looking at right now. Daniel Gafford, uh, as I've mentioned a couple times on this podcast, he's a freak show. He is six foot ten, seven two wingspan. Really tries hard defensively on the perimeter as a center. I don't think he really fits into that. He might actually be more like six eleven. Um, I don't really think he's much of a tweener defensively. He's just a freak show. I like Melvin Frazier out of Tulane quite a bit. I've been mentioning him uh, intermittently since like November as someone I found interesting as a prospect and he's finally flipped the switch. Really good defender, 6 foot 6, reported 7 foot 3 wingspan, uh, as a wing <laughs> and like an elite level quick twitch athlete wing. So, uh it wouldn't surprise me if he ends up you know, going very, very high once the measurements portion happens. Funny story. He also told Mike Schmitz that he didn't know who Demar Derozan was until earlier this year. So, kind of a random little thing. Couple other guys: Jerome Robinson. I really like him at Boston College. Landry Schammett, uh at Wichita State. I'm a pretty big fan of John Tay Porter. Michael Porter's brother is a hot name on you know NBA scouts' minds. Think he's there's potential. He's more of a 2019 guy. But... You know, they do like him, even though he's 6'10 with a seven foot wingspan and kind of a bigger body. He's just very, very skilled, uh, in terms of his basketball IQ and the way he handles the ball. Anthony Simons is another guy at IMG Academy, really, really interesting player, uh, that NBA scouts are very mixed on. You know, some people really like him. Some people really don't. He's the next like prep school, high school guy that might end up going to the draft. Beyond that, I mean, those, those are the guys that I think are hot names. Right now, uh, and I'll be interested to see the way it goes down. Kate the up as well at Ohio State. It's a really hot name. So, And this is I, a
2: great time for those guys to show themselves. We focus a lot on the conference tournaments and the NCAA tournament, but peop- there are more eyeballs on them now than there were early in the season for these non-premium guys. You know, the premium guys obviously had it the whole time, but yeah, it's, it's yeah. a good t- a good chance to really improve your stock.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. And the guys that I've been unimpressed with this year, uh, Trayvon Duval, uh, he didn't start for Duke last game, and they played a lot better without him, so that's not a good sign. Hamadou Diallo has been really bad over the course the last month and a half for kentucky he has not helped himself really at all this year uh i mentioned bruce brown earlier i feel really bad because i really like bruce brown as a dude he's an awesome awesome human being who works hard just hasn't been his year basically trying to think of anyone else i mean those are those are the ones that stand out to me nick richards as well at kentucky was a guy who got some first round publicity He is not good. Chimezi Metu I have like as an early second round pick after thinking he was a potential top 20 guy early in the year. He hasn't really helped himself. Continually hitting guys in the nuts doesn't help your stock as an NBA player. So that's not a good thing. Yeah, no, I think that that about covers it. I I really like this draft class in general, but it's we're still looking for some depth here.
2: It'll be a challenge to, going forward, and a lot of the Eye of the Beholder stuff is going to be fun with this draft. But thank you so much for taking the time to come on.
0: And we finished before curling started, so I'm very happy with that, Danny. Thank you for having me on. I always appreciate it.
2: Thanks again to Sam for taking the time to come on. You can read him at The Athletic. Specifically in their college basketball area, but also his mock drafts, which are great resources for people like me. Those are available, I believe, in both the college site and the NBA site. You can also, there's a little author thing for those of you who subscribe, which of course helps me as well because I, I write for the athletic. You can also follow him on Twitter at Sam underscore Vecini, S A M underscore V E C E N I E, and a wonderful resource for everybody in particular like me at this point in the year where. I'm getting a lot of my draft slash college basketball input through other people, and originally this was done because of, you know, time things, and of course that is a part of it now that I do so much at the NBA, but the other part of it is I've gotten a little bit more judicious about the college basketball that I watch during the year because I don't want it to bias my opinions because one game out of... 30 for a player is probably going to be a non-neutral sample. So maybe it's a great game. Maybe it's a bad game. And that's not why I'm watching it. You know, it's more because, oh, it's Texas Duke. That was a game I watched, but sometimes that colors it a little bit too much and so getting into film using synergy or you know video breakdowns or that kind of stuff leads me to a more balanced place and so you get the good stuff and the bad stuff all together and so that means that it's good to get a little bit of a background and talk with with sam and for those of you who haven't listened to it my podcast with john gavoni of draft express is another good one there and we talked a little bit about process as well and kind of going through and how you look at these players and Striking the right balance for you, I, I you can listen to this podcast for a wide variety of reasons, so finding it out, and of course having the right resources is great, because then you can make your own decisions about what you want to do. It'll probably be a little bit over a week until the next Real Jam Radio, it will, of course, I'm due one a week, but it'll be on the later side, because I'm going to be in Los Angeles for the All-Star Game, and a little bit of vacation around that, so I would assume at this point that I'm not going to record Real Jam Radio until I return, so... Uh, something in the thursday friday saturday range of next week if you want to support this show there are a lot of things you can do you can leave a rating, leave a review in the podcast player of your choosing. It's great if it's iTunes because they're just such a big part of it, but, you know, we'll be practical here. Whatever whatever works for you. You can also subscribe, download every episode. Those are, are great things that you can do to, to support this or any other show, especially one that comes out kind of sporadically like this one does. You can also spread it by word of mouth saying, hey, this is a show that you like and that can be either in person or that can be over whatever social media, whatever you use, because there are still people, you know, as, as much as I enjoy all of the work that I do that still don't know, oh, Danny does a weekly show that goes really in-depth on something. And you can spread the word that way. You can also support our sponsors for this episode. That is Truecar. You can check it out, used, new, whatever you're looking for. It's a pretty amazing tool to use if you're going in that direction. Thankfully for me right now, I'm not looking there, but I know that if I need to, I will be using Truecar. And- if you want to support me and and my other endeavors, of course, Dunked on the podcast I do with Nate Duncan. We're on a little bit of a hiatus as well. The Twitter NBA Show, which will be back probably late next week, similar timeline because when the games come back, there are no there are no games right now, so it's it's hard to do a Twitter NBA Show. And then my writing is at the Athletic, it's at Sporting News, it's at Real GM, of course, and have new stuff coming out all over the place. Did a lot around the trade deadline. For a variety of outlets, and then I will have more stuff coming out in in just different capacities. And soon enough, I'm actually getting started prepping it. My off-season previews will be getting ready. I do not know where they are going to be for this year that is being discussed right now, but they will happen. I do all 30 teams as preparation in a lot of ways. That's how it really started was preparation for everything else that I do. And the written pieces are are enjoyable, and I, I really like doing it. And fans like a detailed perspective and since I watched the whole league it puts me in kind of a different place to be a cap expert and to do that so I can talk about this is going to be a really interesting offseason Sam and I talked about it a fair amount on this podcast this the the structures this year are very very different from what it has been in the last couple in terms of who has space who's on the market all that sort of stuff so I'm really excited for it already and we're still months and months and months away with lots of fun stuff in between so if you have any feedback good bad or indifferent Danny LaRue nba at gmail.com is the best way to do it i do not promise to respond but i do promise to read it because if you take the time to write it i promise that i will read it but sometimes especially responses get intense so that's why it's more about feedback in that way necessarily than like answering questions though i do my best to answer those as well so thank you so much for listening take care and make it a great day
1: struggling with alcohol or drugs recovery centers of america can help the holidays are over the new year is here and the time to act is now expert private care at recovery centers of america will get you on the road to recovery today so call 1-888-RECOVERY now at our fully accredited world class treatment center in Monroeville, pennsylvania you will be treated with compassion dignity and respect by our dedicated team of professionals call 1888 recovery now that's 1888 recovery